Hi, guys. Just before we start this show, we wanted to let you know we've got a really exciting guest on today. We were really looking forward to recording with this person. It's a new up-and-coming comic and creative talent uh, called Stephen Fry. Um, Ooh. Yeah. I've not heard of him. Well, I think you will have in a couple of years. You know, he's new on the scene. Cool. Okay. Well, that's very exciting. And he has this new book out, which is called Heroes. It's a fantastic book. It's all about the Greek heroes. So Jason and Hercules slash Heracles and Pegasus, all these familiar characters, but written in the incredible comic wit and stylings of Stephen Fry. It's really funny. It's fantastic for kids. And if you're an adult who just wants to revisit these stories, I highly recommend it. There you go. That's Heroes by Stephen Fry. And then please do also buy Book of the Year by us. And we should just say this is a special extended version of the podcast because Stephen had so much to say and we wanted to hear it. We figured you guys would want to hear it. And so enjoy this episode of No Such Things A Fish Plus. Okay, on with the show. Hello and welcome to another episode of No Such Thing as a Fish, a weekly podcast coming to you from the QI offices in Covent Garden. My name is Dan Schreiber. I am sitting here with Anna Chazinski, Andrew Hunter-Murray, James Harkind, and a special guest and the man who gave us the name, the QI Elves, it's Stephen Fry. And once again, we have gathered around the microphones with our four favorite facts from the last seven days and in no particular order. Here we go, starting with you, Stephen. All right, yes, I have a fact here. There was a make of toilet paper in Victorian England that was so posh, every sheet had a watermark to deter counterfeiters. And actually, it was so posh, it wouldn't have been called toilet paper, it would have been called lavatory paper. (laughs) If you remember, toilet is deeply non-you, as is the word posh. So, in fact, it was probably a make of lavatory paper that was so classy uh, that every sheet had a watermark. But anyway, that's the point. Uh, And what does that tell us about Victorians and their their bathroom habits, I wonder, their ablutionary customs? Well, this was one of the first toilet papers, or lavatory papers, wasn't it? Yes. What was used before that then? Well, we know all the stories of you know swans necks and goose necks. Yeah, and yeah like corn cobs. Corn I think cobs, we yeah. mentioned corn before. But yeah, I just wonder wow. what. So, for example, this is in the what nineteenth century. Yeah. So this was well after, for example, Jane Austen died. So what did the Regency? Gentry, yes. or just the middle classes. I mean, I can't imagine Jane Austen using a corn cob. Is all I'm no, trying to say. Mm. Like a corn dolly. Yeah. Um, lace. I know the French used lace. No. Which is weird because it's got holes in it, but apparently they did. Uh, um, we know that in many Middle Eastern customs, the hand was always mm, used, and that's yeah. why you don't use the cack hand, literally the shit hand, if I may say so. Ah. Oh, yeah, um, cack handed, uh, and. It's interesting. I don't know. Many people have watched Peter Jackson's reconstruction of, you know, recolorization of some of that extraordinary Imperial War Museum First oh. World War footage. And they may remember seeing those men perched on a bar having a poo with their bottoms sort of hanging over. And yes. It's it reminded one, obviously, of the, the very everyday nature of war includes naturally the very everyday nature of emptying the bowels and uh, there I think one of the comments was from a from a veteran speaking uh, that there was no paper 
So, mm-hmm. so uh-huh. our grandfathers and great-grandfathers who fought in that war and survived would have all had that same experience. And yeah. uh, we don't talk about it. Was the Wipers Times, was that... <laughs> That's a good That's, point. Yeah, was that, that wasn't that? designed for... It wasn't. No, It's it was just a, a classic <laughs> Tommy mispronunciation <laughs> of Ypres. Oh, it's not... Did you think that? <laughs> I thought you would read it and then wipe your butt That's with it. A, well, that sure may be a full ami, as they say, <laughs> might, but a very happy one, yes. Um, so there is a First World War toilet paper fact, which is that both sides printed toilet paper with uh, propaganda on it. So the Germans issued sheets with a series of uh, lying reports by our enemies Mm -hmm. and British manufacturers did the same thing. And oh, drop them on the other side. No, just just right. for you to just for you to wipe your bottom with British propaganda. And I can offer a fact because you know how when we were young, and I don't suppose cartoonists still do it, but escaping prisoners always used to have suits with arrows on yeah. them, oh, yeah. uh, government property arrows. Well, when I was a young and unfortunate uh, criminal convicted <laughs> and inside a prison, <laughs> um, the lavatory paper there was in uh, in those sort of boxes with their rather crispy leaves intertwined and in, interleaved, in fact, uh, and they had the those arrows on. Uh, no, as did no the as did the cigarette rolling papers that that's you got from the shop. But they all had those arrows. Surely, HM prisons only plus the arrows. Yeah. Wouldn't wow. that tempt you to take some oh, when yes, you left as a souvenir? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. exactly. To I mean, show you've done your bird. You yeah. Know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. In America, they get like little tattoos, don't they, to show what they've done? But yes. If you just have a piece of arrow toilet paper, it does the same <laughs> job, doesn't it? <laughs> Well, have we mentioned that they used to, um, so before toilet paper was invented, they used to wipe their bums on the farmer's almanac, didn't they, in America, famously, mm. and the Sears catalogue, and they both used to come with a hole in them so you could hang it up and then use right. it as loo rolls. Right? Yeah, and I was actually listening to a podcast which was saying there are two reasons that suddenly loo roll was necessary and was taken on. One was that we invented plumbing, so suddenly you can't flush a corn on the cob down the loo. Um, and yes. the other was the Sears catalogue started coming laminated started coming with glossy <laughs> glossy paper oh right it didn't work yeah. anymore. Yeah. Right. it was absorbing but not absorbent yeah. <laughs> <laughs> an important distinction it's true I find Waitrose food illustrated very uncomfortable <laughs> every month <laughs> but this does um, bring us to a sensitive point about uh, the wiping bottoms that most people never taught how to wipe a bottom I assume unless there's some dim memory of a mother during potty training actually explaining it. But there was a news story just the other day about the fact that women are being told how to wipe their bottoms and some people on social media were very angry at being told. But the the answer is, and, um, you know, this is all too distressing to hear in turn away, but that um, forwards to back is the correct female way. It's it's as a woman you just are told you, that you chant it practically. Because yeah. men, <laughs> Front I to back. think I'm right in saying guys, we don't do that, do we? I we go the other way. Exactly, yeah. we go back to. Yeah. yeah, but it's not, it doesn't matter for yeah. you, obviously. No, exactly. We don't have the other, the little. You'd yeah. have to really miss we your target a... to get it up your reach. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god! <laughs> wow. It's important to be frank and open about these things. Absolutely. <laughs> so it's a health issue for women, obviously. You know, and it's. I'm uh... so glad you're here, Stephen. <laughs> <laughs> bring the, the um, sorry. Bring the <laughs> levels <laughs> up. <laughs> Educate us on women's But it's interesting. We say bringing the levels up and everything it, it, to an alien species looking at us. Why they would be very puzzled at uh, the fact that we had these very normal and necessary actions that are part of every day, um, like eating and drinking and, and, and having a poo and a pee, uh, and indeed making love in order to, uh, whatever, or coition or whatever one wants to call it, in order to propagate the species. And those are the very things that have the taboos. Whereas murder and cruelty, we can use those words. We can say, I was in the traffic, it was active, it was cruel. Oh, God, it was murder. Mm-hmm. You think, well, hang on, murder kills people. 
Yeah. That's the thing we should have a taboo about. Mm. Yeah. Whereas if you odd. say it was shitting bad traffic, but don't swear. <laughs> yes, yes. Yes. Hang on. Yeah, there's kids Hang in the on. Which, which frame of reference is the dangerous one? Not not, not the pooing. Yes. Yes. And so I'm sure to the you know the, the very useful Martian watching that this should teach us something about how completely screwed up we are. Yes. It's so wrong to be obsessed and well, I think, wasn't the, the people who invented loo roll on a roll for the first time, in fact, invented it in the 1890s, and 1890, right? I think, oh. and they didn't admit to it, and they did it under a shell company. They only admitted to it in 1902 because it was such a <laughs> shameful thing to have invented. Oh, I met, I met someone who worked for Dalton, um, the, the porcelain company mm-hmm. um, in Staffordshire, and I, I asked him at a party, and I said, oh, it's a picturing he did Staffordshire dogs or something that go on mantelpieces, you know, nice little sort of ornamental things. I said, what sort of things do you specialise in? He said, rather coyly, heavy wear. (laughs) (laughs) I didn't quite know what heavy wear was, and I sort of worked out what he meant was bathrooms and lavatories. Ah, heavy wear. Nice. The the proper porcelain. Oh, really? Just just speaking of uh, the late 1800s and which way to wipe, um, (laughs) I saw the patent for the first toilet roll, um, and it sort of answers the question of which way you meant to hang the roll. Does the paper come down underneath, or does it go over? Oh, yes, good question. So which do you think it is? Well, I thought forward, so you can grab it, and that's the way hotels do it, because they do a little coy, provocative oh. peek to show you that it's <laughs> <Yes>. fresh paper. <laughs> yes, new, unused. Yes. <laughs> um, yep, that's correct. It's it's that way in the patent. Well, yeah. not, not a great quiz yeah. question, but... Um, <laughs> no, yeah. But the thing about the little peek is supposed to be, having worked in a hotel, um, it's so that the um, housekeepers can tell if the room has been serviced, so ah. it's the last thing they do. And so if that's done, it means they know that it's fine. So oh, if, wow. if I was a housekeeper, I'd just do that. Do yeah. the rooms very quickly. <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. What, so if they got in and they saw that there were sort of swan towel positioned in little mints, they'd be like, well, that could have just been the person staying here. <laughs> Let me check the bathroom. Uh, so there was a... Sorry, no, I'm just thinking, so, yes, the first company to make Lural disclaimed it or, or hid it. Mm-hmm. I wonder when it was first advertised then, when it was first allowed into magazines and then into television. Mm. Mm. We're all familiar with Andrex and his puppy and everything, yeah. and I'm old enough to remember the hullabaloo when it was f- allowed to have female sanitary products, as they call them, uh, well, advertised on TV, and everyone said that was the beginning of the end. That's disgusting. I don't want to see that. <laughs> um, but presumably there may have been a similar moment when lavatory paper was I bet. first advertised. Yeah. Well, but bizarrely, you never, you still never see loo paper or sanitary pads with the thing on them that they're supposed to clear up. Oh, I mean, I wonder one, if men think there? that we have blue periods, because <laughs> the only thing you see is a drop of blue that's water. That's only Picasso has a blue period. <laughs> <laughs> there is one that says for your bums, isn't there? There was one that has... Um, but yes, I, I, I thought, I remember my friend Hugh and I, we, we wanted to do when we, in, when we were heavy voiceover performers <laughs> in the 80s and doing all kinds of adverts and things. We thought, why don't they do that? It'd be brilliant. Wipes your bottom beautifully. <laughs> that was all you need. It just wipes your bottom. Brilliant. Yeah. Yeah. So this company is Scots who did this yeah. roll and they couldn't advertise. I know that much at least. And they sold it under the counter in the chemists. So you'd have to go in and they would just kind of, they wouldn't even put it on the shelf. It's technically, actually, it should have been placed over the counter according to the patent. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Um, the outside loo would be a string with, with newspaper in it. Yeah. You say the holes mm. in the Sears cover. Yeah. Yeah. I found a, a man, this is a 
two years ago, this is in 2016, it was a man who was fined in court after paying for a takeaway with a £10 note that he had printed onto some toilet paper. <laughs> it's incredible chutzpah. He, he used his computer and he, he just used a desktop computer and a normal printer and he just put the loo roll into the printer feed. Wow. His defence barrister said, this is going to be the most expensive takeaway of Mr Coburn's life. <laughs> Sad. Is the great achievement of Peter Bezeljet and not Peter, but he's Joseph, I mean, don't mm. I? The, is the great achievement of Joseph Bezeljet to be undone by the arrival of moist lavatory paper? Because this seems to be uh, now considered unflushable, and yet everybody yeah. uses yeah. it. Or lots they? of people use it. Yes. Yeah, and uh, there was a report just recently saying there is, they did tests, there is no style of moist paper or wipe that uh, that is suitable for our for mm. our sewers without creating blocks that cost millions yeah, yeah. Fat the fat birds yeah. Yeah. yeah everything you know everything has a Everything casts a shadow in this world. There is no such thing as a free lunch, there's no such mm-hmm. thing as a free bottom wipe. It, it, it all adds up, you know, it, it's got a somewhere, hasn't it? Yeah. It was the number one cause, I think, they found of those big fatbergs that they were finding in the sewers, as in if you took percentages of what made it up, yes. the, fat, uh, the, the wet wipes, which were largely, I think, more for babies than they are for adults, uh, yeah. for cleaning nappies, uh, that's what they found. And I read that we basically have KFC to blame for that. Colonel Sanders is the person who took the wet wipe and first introduced it into restaurants, and that's spread around the world. Yeah, so before you we mean were... the moist lemon-scented cleansing square? <laughs> <laughs> I think that's what you mean. Like another voiceover's coming back to you. <laughs> they do make sense, though. I mean, it is bizarre, um, and I think people in other countries think we're bizarre that we use dry paper... Um, to get rid of mm. that when it makes no sense not to apply oh, water. Yeah. I well, mean, we wash our hands if we think there might be one bacteria on it and we yeah. cover our bottoms with Forward poo. the B-Day. Yeah, yes. Well, indeed, yeah. That's the answer, but not everyone has room for a B-Day. But no. what they do have room for, and these are becoming more and more popular, are little installations that are now quite cheap of a Japanese-style, oh. um, mm. you know the kind of thing? That yes. you plumb it, You join into your plumbing, it, it's a seat and you have a remote control, and you press buttons and it oscillates a jet up the jacksy, um, <laughs> and it has a female setting and a male setting, uh, and it can also offer uh, hot air to, to dry, sir or madam's... Uh, Backside, <laughs> and uh, these are becoming more and more popular and considered very healthy. And of course, there is no nothing goes into the sewer except what you what you've dropped in there yeah, in nature's way. So there is obviously it costs energy because they're electric. Yeah. Um, but uh, those are going to be more and more popular. It's so it's- funny. You're um, just because your voice is so perfect for talking and selling things as you did that I thought your voice would be fantastic for that would, would sir or madam enjoy a, a jet up the jet there's, there's a great story about one of my heroes one of my cinematic heroes as well many people's cinematic hero Billy Wilder the great show. oh yeah director you know some like it hot yeah those, some Sunset Boulevard whatever um, many many great films and I think he was in um, Paris with Marilyn Monroe and Tony Curtis and Jack Lemmon and trying to keep control, particularly of Tony Curtis and Marilyn Monroe and his wife, Audrey, whom I met, funnily enough, she told me this story was true, um, uh, had said to him, honey, I want you when you're in Paris to get a proper Parisian bidet because the, um, you know, the Wolcotts have got one or whoever it was, some family that she sort of um, keeping up with the Jones with uh, and she felt that they wanted. And he said, sure, honey, I get you, I get you, no problem, no problem. <laughs> anyway, he was so busy, he was so busy in Paris that he just didn't get hold. He didn't even have time to look at a plumbing supply shop and have a bidet shipped over from <laughs> Paris to, to Beverly Hills. Uh, and on in the car, on the way to Wassy or whatever the airport was then uh, in Paris, um, he suddenly remembered and he stopped off 
at a at a bureau de poste to send a telegram uh, to, to, to 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 prepare for disappointments. And honey, tried everywhere, no be days in Paris. Suggest doing handstand in shower. <laughs> <laughs> so that would do it. Wouldn't it? <laughs> I love B day, which um, you, you might all know this, but um, is named after a small extinct donkey yes, or horse. Yeah. I didn't know. Oh, did you not? Yeah. yeah. So B day is French for this species of small horse, and so small that the idea is with a B day you'd be straddling it like like this little. Wait, is it a, is it a real? Animal? Yeah, yeah it's a real animal. In, in Italian, the word for bidet translates as hygienic little horse. There you are. Same, Same thing. Yeah. 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 But I didn't think it was based on an extinct real animal which people rode to clean. No, no, no. No, no. Like a burrito looks like a little donkey, but yeah. it doesn't mean people ate donkeys in the way they ate burritos. God, time travellers, when you go back, open the toilet, and there's a corn of cob, and there's a donkey. You know, what, what am I meant to do here? This toilet paper that we were talking about, the main fact, mm -hmm. um, it it was uh, it was shown at the 1878 Paris Exposition, and it won the highest prize. So it was seen as such an innovation in yeah. in uh, anti counterfeiting in in wow. actual quality of lavatory loo roll. So the watermark was the maker of the. It wasn't that you could have it in your own family crest. <laughs> no, <laughs> it was the it was the watermark of the manufacturer of the roll. Oh, Bromo, that's Bromo, right. Bromo, exactly. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah, that's who they were, right? Yeah, yeah. Oh. And that there's was the best so they made they because they had amazing inventions in the Victorian era. I know that the travelator. I think was there. Sometimes, the... The, yeah. Sometimes it's the simplest inventions that are the best, though, isn't it? You're right. Certainly. Yeah, we do still all use loo roll. Yeah, yeah. yeah. We don't use. They, there was a period when they were, they called themselves medicated, which is, a, mm. I suspect, not a legally enforceable or meaningful yes. word. Isal medicated we had at my prep school, which was the hideously tissuey one, oh. and bronco. They claimed to be medicated. What they were medicated with, I don't know. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. DDT, probably. <laughs> <laughs> the first package toilet paper was made by um, Gaetti, Joseph Gaetti, and he called it the therapeutic paper. Oh. <laughs> Some were named after Queen Victoria. What an honour. Victorian brands of toilet paper. I just found a list of a few, and they included things like Bulldog and Samson and Virilla, which is great. <laughs> um, but there were also others called Victoria and Queen and Gloria Victus. Good. Quite, yeah. Wow. Can I tell you about one? Because this is a Victorian invention. Oh, yeah. And a Victorian invention that actually was made that I had never heard of before. But um, bifocals for horses. <laughs> and they got these. Really? So this was in um, the 1880s, 1887. Um, someone went into a pharmacy and said, "My horse has gone short-sighted. I'm a cab driver." Um, <laughs> and he's like, "Start the joke." I know. Yeah. <laughs> but the thing is, he likes to read the paper. So <laughs> <laughs> well, he kept walking into things. He's not getting as many tips as he used to. Um, and it was actually tried out. And there are pictures of this horse. There are photographs of this horse wearing these bifocals, which apparently it didn't like at first. But then it refused to go without them and wow. it got taken up by handsome cab drivers because what they actually <laughs> did was make the road seem like it was rising up in the horse's face and so they used to pick up their hooves ah. much higher and that looked you know that A was smart, quite posh elegant high exactly wow. yeah um wow. so they started wearing them 
So that actually, ha- that actually, it actually happened. happened. My focus was we know were invented by Benjamin Franklin, weren't they? Uh, yes. 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 One of the first. Yes. But not equine ones. No. <laughs> <laughs> That's rather That's great. Another bit of a bizarre invention from the Victorian times. Um, they used to, if you went to a pub or any kind of restaurant, the opposite of today, smoking, the smell of smoke was actively encouraged and it made the place feel like somewhere you wanted to be, somewhere that was happening. So a lot of the problem was if a restaurant started its day, it was not full of smoke. So someone invented an automatic smoking machine the machine would wow. have lit cigarettes sort of bellows exactly that, uh, and it would clothes. come out and so the idea is that it would sort of cover the restaurants in this mist of smoke and you'd walk in and go oh fantastic what a happening what a happening restaurant wow yeah. do we know if that got made Gosh. no I, I mean it got made but I don't know if it was I don't know if they made more than one. Oh, but they made a, a model of it that is amazing yes yeah they yes. used to have competitive smoking in pubs in the UK in the early 20th century did they yeah and it, they you would have a pipe and you'd have to keep it. Oh, yes, that went on way, oh. way into my lifetime. Oh, yeah. really? To keep it, in America, they had it to, yeah. You, uh, everyone had an identical clay pipe. The mm. whole point was it had to be sort of controlled. <laughs> the clay pipe had an identical quantity of pipe tobacco. Uh, and it was their job to light it and keep it going <laughs> for as long as possible. And it's staggering how long. They, you know, you or I would have just kind of, it would have gone out in seconds, but they would keep going for hours and hours, putting their fingers over the uh, the top of the, the bowl and just loads. It's a lost slowly. art. It is. I was the very last um, pipe smoker of the year ever. <laughs> oh, right. Yes. Really? <laughs> yes, it used fact. to be a very popular thing every year. There's a big dinner at the Savoy Hotel, sponsored by Alfred Dunhill, who in those mm. days were primarily tobacconists, yeah. now a fashion house, of course. But their mm. shop in uh, German Street was filled with huge jars of tobacco, and, and they were called um, your sort. Um, snuff and tobacco were called a sort. So but you'd hear someone come in and they'd go, oh, hello, your grace. Oh, so I come in, have you got any of my sort in at the moment? Yes. <laughs> and their sort would be a mixture of Cavendish and these strange names that these particular types of tobacco had. And um, anyway, I, I, uh, it was actually QI. It was the very first... QI. I agreed to do uh, an interview for, for The Independent, I think it was, to, to publicise QI as a new programme. Oh. And um, I went to the Groucho Club, and at the time I had decided to try and cut down cigarette smoking, um, but I always carried a pipe with me. I'd always loved smoking pipe. The first pipe of the day I really enjoyed. So I had a pipe, and, and I really felt like smoking, and those days you could smoke anywhere. And so I lit the pipe, and the photographer was taking pictures of me, and it was on the front of the Independent that next day or whatever the following week. And immediately I got a letter from the pipe smoking association. <laughs> <laughs> Shows how desperate they were. <laughs> Finally! Because <laughs> the old days they had Harold Wilson and um, Eric Morecambe and all these kind of people yeah. who could be the pipe smokers of the year, but it was running thin on the ground, Russ Abbott. And, <laughs> <laughs> <you know. laughs> and finally, uh, they, they, and I said, well, I don't really regularly smoke, but they, and they made me a special pipe, which I still have, which is in the shape of a BBC microphone that you, uh-huh. can, you can disassemble like the man with the golden gun and his oh, uh, wow. various <laughs> apparatus and turn into a pipe. Um, wow, and, that's uh, so great. Yeah, it was really, really so fun. are you the, technically the reigning I am. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I am. The, yeah, I think they gave a very special Lifetime Pipe Award to the comedy writer Lawrence Marks, who was also on the board of the Pipe Smoking Association. Mm. And obviously I, we all deprecate smoking now and I don't smoke anymore and I haven't for 12 years, I think it is, but... Um, but I sometimes think, you know, like when I had a bit of a cancer scare the, uh, uh, earlier this year, I kind of think, well, if I got my death sentence, I would probably just order a pipe online <laughs> and a great, you know, mm. big, great 
vat of, uh, of tobacco <laughs> and just uh, carry on again. Uh, but I probably wouldn't, actually. It would probably taste mm. horrible in my mouth, but it's a, it's a memory of, of, of that. But I'm old enough to remember smoking cinemas, smoking in the tube, smoking on buses, smoking absolutely everywhere, even in mm. church. You know, there were wow. grand families had their box pews with brass, um, brass uh, uh, wow. ashtrays, so the squire could have a cigar while listening <laughs> to the sermon. But it was short. It was really, I mean, apart from pipes, you know, we think of Walter Raleigh. It was really Oscar Wilde's generation that, that made cigarettes popular, and they were considered very decadent and extraordinary. And that was in the eighteen nineties, but by fifteen years later, virtually or mm. twenty years later, it was the middle of the First World War. Everybody Everyone did it. I mean, it was just mm. everybody. But we've only had about a century of it, Until, basically. Yeah, but, but, and oh, now, of course, it looks weird. You see yeah. people doing it in, in, you know, like, again, that Peter Jackson thing. You just saw yeah. all those Tommies smoking away. I love those <laughs> things, which it's like, throughout all of history, no one smoked. And then for 100 years, everyone smoked. Everyone. And then for the rest of time, no one will smoke again. Yeah. So it's just yeah. this, even though to us it's a normal thing, mm. yeah. it's completely unusual in the history of... Utterly. There's that amazing moment as well that America experienced, and it's covered in a Adam Curtis documentary, um, Power of Nightmares, I think the oh, documentary yes. is called. And the idea was that they realised in America that it was only men smoking, and they needed women to smoke as well. Oh, this is Freud's um, brother-in-law, isn't it? Yes, it, it is, yeah. yeah. And the idea was that they empowered the women of America to start smoking, saying that they were something like sticks of freedom oh, or liberty. Um, liberty oh, yeah. torches. The famous yes. photograph of them, uh, they, he paid for them to walk down Fifth Avenue with cigarettes. Mm. Yes. It, it's a very famous picture. Oh. I think, yes, it's the same... Member of the Freud family who invented bacon and eggs, I suppose. Yes, That's right. right. Oh, really? Yeah, he was, he was the father of the advertising. The father yeah. of healthy yeah. consumption. <laughs> yeah, <products. of> <laughs> okay, it is time for fact number two, and that is Andy. My fact is that in 1972, a Canadian DJ held a contest to choose a Canadian national simile like as American as apple pie. The winning entry was as Canadian as possible under the circumstances. <laughs> really so they, so nice. they don't know what similes are, for a yeah. start. And <laughs> yeah, this, so sweet. this was a DJ called Peter Zarsky, and uh, he was a great Canadian broadcaster, and he hosted shows for decades, and you know, lots of aspects of Canadian life he analysed and, and examined. And he hosted this competition, and a 17-year-old student came up with that uh, slogan, yeah, as Canadian as possible. And um, weirdly, Zaski, he just speaking about smoking, he once wrote an essay called How to Quit Smoking in 50 Years or Less. <laughs> Brilliant. Wow. I like it. Yeah. Uh, yeah, humorists in Canada. Lots yeah. of those. Stephen Leacock, obviously, yeah. the most famous writing humorist, but all those comedians like Dan Aykroyd and mm. Ray Moranis and all that, but so many of them. Yes. Right. Yeah, they have an unfair Stephen reputation, Leacock. don't they, for yeah. being dull. Um, given that they, which I'm not saying I believe, but it is a reputation they have. Is it? I, I think nice, nice, but a bit yeah, dull. Nice. I remember yeah. when I first went to Toronto, years and years and years ago, and uh, I called up my friend and colleague. We were working together all the time then, Hugh Laurie, and he, he had never been at that point too. And he asked what it was like, and I said, mm, I think probably I can best describe how Toronto is by saying that the. I asked at the front desk what you know what attractions there were to see, and they said, "Well, there's a the Bally Footwear Museum just down the street." <laughs> <laughs> and I, we laughed at that. And then two days later, I said, I, "I can give you a clearer idea of Toronto now." <laughs> 
I had nothing better to do than go to the ballet <laughs> But in, in, in fairness to, to Toronto, it has improved enormously in that regard. The Foot Museum or the whole city? Yeah, the whole city. It, it, won the, it won the World Series twice in a row, the Blue Jays, and it became a, you know, and now it's, um, yeah, it's yeah. pretty. I just spent three months in Niger on the Lake, which is a beautiful oh, little wow. town just on the, right on the American border. Oh, really? Um, and uh, that, was, that was stunning. It's, and they are very aware of how the world looks at them. They know that they're a bit over polite and a bit <laughs> yeah. over, over, you know. And do you find they are actually septic. factually like that, aren't they? I mean, there was a study done yeah. looking at people's Twitter feeds and it was only comparing American and Canadian Twitter feeds. But the preponderance of words on American Twitter feeds were negative things. So like hate and damn and bored and annoying. And then on Canadian feeds, they're all just saying words like favorite and gorgeous. <laughs> Who even says gorgeous anymore? No. Great. Amazing. In um, Ontario, they have the Apology Act that came in in 2009. And that's because people <laughs> apologize all the time. And their law now is that an apology is not allowed to be considered an admission of guilt because what would happen oh. is you'd have a little car crash or something and, and everyone would go sorry yes. sorry sorry oh. and they go well he said sorry that's an admission of liability yeah. and of course it isn't wow. because it is just a natural instinct yeah. that's so good um, just on the boredom thing there is a town in Canada called Okotoks I don't, has anyone been? No. no no well they had a slogan a tourist slogan and it was there are a number of things to do in Okotoks <laughs> <laughs> Very nice. <laughs> and that number is zero. <laughs> my my friend John Sessions did uh, his postgraduate, uh, his doctorate um, at a uh, university in Canada, and he waxes very, very lyrical on his contempt for some of the more dull sides of it. Uh, back then in the, in the 80s, I guess, or late 70s even in his case. And I happened to be in Oxford at the Oxford... I was filming there, and I, uh, there's the Oxford University Press Shop on the high or the broad or whatever. Mm -hmm. okay. uh, and um, uh, I was ordering the new Oxford English Dictionary, the, the second edition of the, the whole thing, and it was a, there was a special price uh, for, for, for an early buyer of it. And it wasn't in the shop, it was in the depository in Northampton, and they would send it to any address. And, and it was, I don't know, £1,200 or something. It was, it was a huge number of volumes mm. of this massive dictionary, and I was terribly pleased with it. And then I was looking around, and I saw one of those Oxford books of, you know, you have Oxford books of the, uh, quotations and so on. Mm -hmm. This was the Oxford book of Canadian political anecdotes wow. and I thought I must send this to John Sessions it was like insane to think what how could you fill a book with Canadian political anecdotes anyway I thought it was very amusing so I took it up to the front of the desk and then who should come into the shop but Jeremy Paxman who'd been across the road at All Souls having a lunch because he was doing a book on the British establishment so we wathoed and said hello and I sort of vaguely knew him and um, he, I said, look at this book I've got here. It's, uh, it's the Oxford Book of Canadian Political Anecdotes. And he said, oh, <laughs> like that. And then the assistant behind the desk said, that'll be £1,217. <laughs> what? <laughs> and Jeremy Paxton could only see that book. <laughs> he said, what? And I said, oh, yes, very rare book. <laughs> I mean, can Canadian Political Anecdotes, Jeremy, come on. And he was going, are you mad? <laughs> and, and, the, and the assistant, bless him, he joined in and said, oh, yes, yes, very, very rare. <laughs> so Amazing. I signed it. 
and Baxman went off pulling at his hair, doing all those Baxman-y what sort of expressions. And then it, wa- it wasn't until two years later I was filming again in Oxford and I'd been asked to do this Spectator Diary, you know? Yeah. And, and so I told that story in the Spectator Diary and about two days later I got this furious letter from Jeremy Baxman. I have been dining out on how mad you are. <laughs> now I discover. <laughs> so... <laughs> Um, there's something else Canadians are very well known for is what? saying A. Oh, yeah. Um, how, are you all right? It's nice weather today, A, but not in that accent, in a Canadian accent. The Canadian um, alphabet A, A, B, A, B, A. Exactly. So the University of British Columbia has an official A lab, which is it's their syntax of speech lab. It's where you go if you want to study the linguistics of that wow. kind of thing. And it's called the A lab. And oh, very good. Yes, and I think it's first, so it goes back a long time. It goes back to before Canada was a country at all. So 1773, it appeared in an Irish play, and, you know, Irish people went to Canada, and then it appeared in a book in the 1830s uh, that was completely littered with it. But, yeah, it's weird. Do we know why they might do that? So I think there's been a suggestion that um, there is a small bit of England where there's a similar um, inflection, Uh, and I can't remember where it is, actually, but people took it from there. Because the accent is not dissimilar as it creeps over the border into Wisconsin and uh, North Dakota. You think of that movie Fargo and the Mm, wonderful Francis McDormand performance. They've got to question your police work there. (laughs) Kind of, it's got that similar kind of slight. And there, the the reason is supposedly the Scandinavian input into Isn't Wisconsin it? and that part there. They're all called Sorensen. In favour of the Bill Macy character was called Gunderson, I think, wasn't he? They've all yeah. got names like that. Okay. Oh. It's, the other thing is just the size of the place. I mean, yeah. Canada is vast. You know, think of America's big, yeah. but Canada fans out into a greater yeah. width and up into the Arctic Circle. There's a great story, isn't there, the... Uh, Sort of like a gap year where a, um, a woman writes to her sister who's Canadian and says, um, my son, your, your nephew's got his gap year and he's, uh, he'd be landing in uh, N- Newfoundland. Uh, uh, what if you could pick him up? And her sister lived in British Columbia. So she sent a reply back saying, why don't you, you're nearer. <laughs> <laughs> we are nearer here in, in yeah. Britain to, the, to that coast than wow. to, to Labrador. Yeah. That's we are. so good. <laughs> Um, I, was, I was reading about lumberjacks, um, oh, yeah. classic yeah. Canadian. Oh, yes. I love that a female lumberjack is a lumberjill. I think that's a, <laughs> that's a lovely term. Um, but I've discovered there's a thing, they clothing, I was reading about their clothing, mm. and um, there have been lumberjack trousers invented, which I've never seen before. And the idea is that they are chain uh, chainsaw proof. You can't chainsaw through them. And there were videos, wow. yeah, on YouTube of lumberjacks showing you and they, they all start the video by going, do not do this at home, do not do this at home, do not do this at home. And they, they rev it up and the chainsaw gets going and they just slam it down onto their trousers. And the fabric, it's eight layers of a plastic that are, it's a, it, there's a whole science video you can watch about the beauty of the science of, of how it works. And you can watch it immediately get chewed up in the trousers and, and stall the chainsaw wow. immediately. It's extraordinary and, and scary. Imagine being the first person to try And that. yet it That's... can fell a tree. <laughs> yes, yeah. exactly. Yeah. But imagine if accident, you know, you were going out and you're, you're, also lumberjack wife and put out your other pair of trousers that morning (laughs) (laughs) just off to do my filming honey oh great have fun (laughs) so i was looking up other slogans in canada and place name slogans Uh, so ottawa uh, launched a new slogan in 2001 and the slogan was technically beautiful (laughs) Um, 
So despite what you're looking at. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what they were trying to say is that it's technologically advanced. Yeah, it's great technology, oh. sissy. Okay. Uh, the Canadian Broadcasting Humble. Corporation, they responded saying the response to the slogan might be described as technically mixed. <laughs> I do have to share with you, just on the basis of that, sorry to interrupt, but um, this thing of getting yourself a phrase, a logo, a, 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 you know, a strap line, whatever you want to call it, as a country, a city, a state. And, and, and when I was touring across all the American states for a BBC documentary I did years ago, um, you noticed every time you crossed a state line that uh, they would say, welcome to uh, Mississippi, and it would have its official name, you know, the Magnolia State, and there'd be some phrase like, come play, or something like that, you know. And... and the one that I really wanted to congratulate was Kentucky. Now, Kentucky is probably known for two things. I mean, it's the Bluegrass State is its official nickname, but they wanted a kind of one that expressed what it was to be a Kentuckian. Mm. And you think of two things. You think of the Kentucky Derby yeah. mm-hmm. and you think of bourbon. Mm-hmm. And they came up with a two-word phrase that incorporated both that, both those two things. Uh, and ho- it's beautiful. Horse throat. Because you'll have a horse throat if you drink bourbon <laughs> and they have lots of horse no, notes. It's, it's unbridled spirit. Isn't oh, that yeah. great? Oh, really Isn't that genius? Good, yes. Whoever thought of that Better than yours, Andy. Case, a case of Maker's Mark. <laughs> yours would have been runner-up. I it is even runner better up. than horse throat. <laughs> <laughs> but good. You've got the idea. <laughs> They're weirdly interstate um, identity, aren't they, though? And state slogans. Oh, and yeah. it really took off in the mm. 20s and 30s, I think. And um, they've all got state symbols. And in fact, um, I've put down here Mexico, but I think I meant to write New Mexico, because Mexico is not mm-hmm. a state of America. New Mexico is the only U.S. state that has, and it's legally enshrined, um, a official state question, um, <laughs> and the state oh. question is red or green. And do you know why? No. Is it a game show or something? No, yes. it's because chili is very important <gasps> in their red cuisine. And apparently, you, you know, you get you ask in a restaurant red or green, and that's what you go for. So they've got a state question. That's good. That's we can have cool. like. Tomato sauce or brown sauce is the yeah. British one. As exactly. Danny Baker does on his yes, show every does, week. Yeah. And I embarrass myself by saying, I'm afraid I've never had brown sauce. <gasps> and um, I wasn't making a point. I didn't I don't disapprove of brown sauce. Many of my very closest <laughs> friends whom I admire in the world regularly buy it. I just had never tried it. At Have you point. since tried it? The same way as I've never watched Strictly Come Dancing. It's just one of those things that I've never got round to, and I have a very strong feeling I never will. But <laughs> it does upset some people because yeah. they, they get yeah. very excited. Did do they bring you brown sauce? I to have try since tasted it, isn't okay. it? It's perfectly nice. It's <laughs> slightly vinegary for my taste, mm. but it makes me cough a bit when you first breathe in, you know? But I think uh, it's because that's two quintessentially British things. Yes. Stephen Fry and brown sauce. It feels like they should be together, <laughs> yeah. doesn't it? Well, you see, this is it. Whenever there's a binary question, like, you know, tomato ketchup yeah. or brown sauce, I will immediately assume there isn't or say mustard. <laughs> <laughs> really annoy people. <laughs> <laughs> Um, some more Canadian mm, things, perhaps. Yeah, uh, yeah. It's very cold in Canada, it famously. Well cold. Um, the coldest they've ever had is minus sixty-two point eight degrees, and that was in a place called Snag in Yukon. Uh, and the residents would walk around like zombies because if they walked too fast, they would get out of breath. Uh, and the something to do with the 
the way that the air went meant that you could hear things from a massive distance. Ooh. So it's very, very dry air and very, very um, dense yes. air in at mm. one so point. So like as in underwater travel. Yeah, absolutely. Travels. And it meant that you could hear people talking from five kilometres away. You could wow. overhear the conversations. Oh, no, wow. there are lots of fallings out, <laughs> neighbours bitching yeah, about people in the next town. You're walking so slowly that you can't get to them to say, hey. <laughs> <laughs> hey. <laughs> yeah, I have I not put on winter weight, thanks very much. I did a film in Winnipeg peg once and then that gets to minus 40 which is very very cold um i told my father that and my brother who was there said uh, is that centigrade or fahrenheit my father who's a physicist <laughs> brilliantly came back straight away said to make any difference my brother was very cross about this he said, what do you mean it doesn't make any difference my brother said, it doesn't make any difference he said but that's ridiculous of course it makes a difference and my father just happened to know and was not giving it away that minus 40 is exactly the same yeah. Yeah. That's great. and Fahrenheit is the one point where they're identical so it's when it's minus 40 it doesn't make any difference which, which you're using Celsius or Fahrenheit so I so hope he typical. never revealed no the he was reason. the kind of person who if you've got cold in the kitchen would open the fridge you know like a, a true physicist oh, to, warm really? to warm the room yes. up and yeah. those of us who are superstitious about these things we go but it's, surely it's going to make the room colder you go don't you know anything about thermodynamics <laughs> can only make it warmer I was wondering about national stereotypes and where like across the world and how old they are and partly because I'm reading um, Martin Chuzzlewit at the moment which has amazing descriptions of Americans yeah. in it and it's just so interesting that his descriptions are hilarious and exactly what you'd Describe very satirical, the so satirical, so it's brilliant. So, um, one of my favorite scenes is where Martin has just gone to America, spoiler, and he's hanging out with Americans for the first time and he's astonished at how much they eat and how fast they eat. And I just loved his quote that said, The poultry, uh, there was a turkey at the top, a pair of ducks at the bottom, and two fowls in the middle, disappeared as rapidly as if every bird had had the use of its wings and had flown in desperation down a human throat. <laughs> <laughs> he was sadly disappointed in America though Dickens wasn't he in as much as there's that wonderful bit in Chuswick do you remember have you come up to it yet the, the Water Toast Society yes uh, which is really just at that. the Water Toast Society is an American Fenian society a, 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 a home rule for Ireland society and Chuswick has invited them as someone who apparently believes in home rule for the Irish and all the Americans um, uh, say how cruel the lion of Albion with its uh, paws and its claws tearing at the throat of the free Irish and the Watertoast Society exists to, 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 to spread the gospel of freedom uh, for all people. And Chuzzlewick got up and said, yes, and I know you must all feel the same about, uh, about your slaves mm -hmm. and, and your Indians. And there was a terrible silence. Yes. And they burned the Watertoast meeting all down yeah. to the ground and the society's never heard of oh, again wow. and it's Dickens really having a go at the fact that Americans are all very good at saying how tut 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 look at you in Ireland but the moment it, the torch was <laughs> yeah. back on them yeah the yeah. hypocrisy of it is yeah. amazing didn't he as well just speaking of in the first fact about um, anti-counterfeit measures of the watermark wasn't a large part of his life dominated by stopping um, the copying mm. of his books and the reselling yes. and that he took a huge part of his and a large part of his hatred for America again because that's where yeah. it was and he tried to get Twain and all well, sorts even his to... very first book when he was a young man had never been heard of and he was just doing the text to a famous illustrator and he did the text of the proceedings of the Pickwick Club and slowly it just took off and everyone said who is this writer the right yes the drawings are very nice but the writing 
before it had even finished its serialized form, there were the Pinklewick papers, the Piggy Week chronicles. <laughs> wow. There were there were so many of these uh, uh, pirate uh, versions floating around, and Dickens was always furious at that. Yeah. Yes, yeah. yeah. I love the idea of sort of back alley editions of Dickens. You think you're buying some uncut Pickwick? Yeah. You get it home and open the papers, and it turns out you got some Pinklewick. Pinklewick. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> but it's, if you read the diaries of the James family, for example, Henry James and his brother William, the famous scene. Psychiatrist or psychologist, I mean, um, and the Alcotts and all these New England literary families, they would gather together uh, on a Sunday, um, and the previous Saturday, one of them would have gone down to the docks to get the latest Dickens, mm. and they would arrive in bundles, oh, wow. and they would be cut open, and you would, you know, you race home with it, <sighs> bring as many people around from, you know, who were of, of a similar literary bent or were excited, and read the next chapter. And it yeah. was like the most exciting thing. And Henry James talks about remembering this as a boy sitting under the table. And, and, and wow. in particular, the one that we now most laugh at or is probably least regarded as a great Dickens novel is um, uh, The Old Curiosity Shop. <clears throat> Partly because of Oscar Wilde's famous comment is that uh, you have to have a heart of stone to read of the death of Little Nell without laughing. But they were so excited about Little Nell that 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 was there was a riot at the docks in Boston. Everyone shouting, "Is Nell dead? Is Nell dead?" And it was oh, wow. like, you know, later on there was the JR in in Dallas, and mm. there have been such things. And I guess people want to know what the finale of this Game of Thrones episode is, but mm. really nothing touched that extraordinary oh. effect. And, and am I right in saying they? People on the ship actually announced it. Mm. It wasn't even the point of taking it home and reading. Someone Total says, "Spoiler, yes, <laughs> ultimate spoiler." Yeah, little Mel die. Yeah. <laughs> Bill Hayden is the mole. <laughs> <laughs> Carla defects. <laughs> horrible sorry, experience don't, for our listeners. Don't broadcast there. <laughs> Don't broadcast those. We need to get a new captain of this ship. Yeah. This guy is really He's <laughs> the narrator in the murder of Roger Ackroyd, who does the murder. Oh God! Policeman in Hercule Poirot's <laughs> Christmas. <laughs> Stephen, <laughs> with some. <laughs> okay, it is time for fact number three, and that is Chazinski. Yes, my fact this week is that the scholar who first discovered that the Noah's Ark story predates the Bible got so excited by it that he stripped off his clothes and ran naked around the British Museum. <laughs> uh, and this, this was just how thrilling it was. This was in uh, 1853, and this amazing discovery was made, which was basically the palaces of um, the, this great Assyrian king and the Library of Nineveh. And this person found them, and then this scholar called George Smith, back in the British Museum, who was a very devout Christian, translated this tablet and realised this is the Noah story and um, freaked out and <laughs> apparently took some clothes off and ran around the museum. But it was fair enough because it was a big deal. Yeah, yeah the excitement deal. was so great for him. That was his only way of expressing... It, it, he wasn't a nudist, basically. It was, it was just... <laughs> it was too much in the I moment. I was certain he was completely stark as... Yeah. He may have I think he in. took off some clothes, some sources say. You know, I'm, maybe he kept his willy in. <laughs> I tell you what, though, they get excited about things in very odd ways at the British Museum. I have a friend who James and I know, and I think, Stephen, you might have met him. He's called Irving Finkel. Oh, yes, the great... Oh. Um, the great uh, yeah, the great, the great wedge, um, the cuneiform. Cuneiform, uh, yeah. yeah. And um, um, I, was, I was behind the scenes with him at the museum 
museum and he showed me a sort of a cast of the of the tablet the cuneiform noah's ark tablet that he used to study because he actually studied it further decoded certain aspects of it that had not been seen before which was the actual measurements from noah's ark and they recreated it which is amazing but while we were sitting there and at the very beginning of our meeting he suddenly got an email and jumped up from a seat and he went quick run and we ran through the corridor Cha- I was chasing Were him you naked at the time no yeah. every all, all bits He's of clothing magnificently so. bearded individual yeah. by the way so, yeah. so he, he looks yeah. wonderful yeah. Yeah. Um, but so he he sort of ran down the corridor, corridor and then he cut into the kitchen and we stopped and I, what happened and he said there's just been an announcement there's orange juice in the fridge for any member of staff <laughs> And he said, you've got to be quick. Everyone gets to it before I do. And we quickly had two cups and went back into his room. So That is classic academic. When I first went to Cambridge to do an interview at Cambridge, I saw these two old dons in black gowns, and I thought I'll follow them and I'll hear them talking about uh, Aristotle or, or something really, really intellectual. And one of them was saying, no, no, it comes in a small packet about the size of a single-play record, a 45-RPM record, and it's full of comminuted little pieces that come to life when you pour boiling water in them. Um, and I assure you, it's singularly toothsome. A chicken noodle. Um, and the company is called Nor with a K, a silent K. And that's what they were talking about. I was thinking, wow, that's not what I expected. But it was very pleasing. Uh, yeah. But so this, this academic, what was his name? Do, do you know his name? George Smith. George yes. Smith. And, and was it the uh, cognitive dissonance isn't quite the word? Was it the shock? That the Bible might not story might not be true, or that it is true, but uh, well, not as the Bible tells it. It's confusing because he was pleased, whereas I would have thought, yes, yes, how shocking. But I think it was almost like, good, this is verifying that the Bible was the truth. Perhaps well, he was obsessed with or these tablets. Truth. Yes, because of course the Greeks also around the same time they had a flood myth, Deucalion and Pyrrha. Yes. Mm. Um, and the same thing, they had a wooden chest, it's called in the way it's translated, but it might as well be called an ark, because an ark is a chest as mm-hmm. much as it is anything else. The Ark of the Covenant is a chest, after all. Mm. It's a strange word. And and, and so the Deucalion and Pyrrha, Pyrrha was the daughter of uh, Pandora, the first woman. So it's, it's a very Ooh. early thing that mankind displeased the gods, and they sent the flood. Mm-hmm. And Deucalion and Pyrrha survived because they were warned about it. And then when they landed, it wasn't on... Well, we think now Mount Ararat, the uh, supposedly the Ark landed, don't they? Mm-hmm. So many people believe Noah's Ark was on Mount Ararat, but it landed somewhere, and uh, and they were told by Athena, I think it was, they were told to throw the bones of their mother over their shoulders, and they didn't know what what that meant, and they were very confused. And they said, "Oh, the bones of our mother, it's these stones, Mother Earth." So they threw stones, and wherever Pyrrha threw a stone over her shoulder, a woman sprang up out of the ground, and wherever. Uh-huh. Jukeli and a man sprang up, so it's, the, it's one of those no. you know autochthonic stories. Yeah. Um, but, but you don't uh, want to take that literally, accidentally. But it's a similar thing of a you know of a punishment, <laughs> and 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 the um, uh, Philemon and Balkis stories is also another flood, and, and mm-hmm. uh, so they, they exist. You know, there are at least two versions in Greek myth, and many others in other Mediterranean myths: the Sumerian, yeah. Akkadian, Babylonian. Uh, Babylonian, I think. Yes, I mean, I think these versions. guys stole a lot from the Babylonians. In fact, the Assyrians, so they probably got it. But yeah, they all have been passed it, down. From is one it to like another. that? Five thousand BC was it when there was a, all those civilizations, the Mayans, and mm. the, the, the you know, all these cities suddenly were evacuated. These great that yeah. seems there seems to have been a plague that was common yeah. across. Right. 
uh, early civilizations. Mm. That, How uh, amazing is that? It's passed down. Yes, and, the, and of course, yeah. That's, um, but this this myth is particularly bizarre. So this is the how the Assyrian myth had it in the library at Nineveh when they found it. And I didn't realize this is in the Epic of Gilgamesh, so the, the oh, very famous yeah. uh, discovery, most famous discovery that was made there. And the belief, the story as it was told was that there was this huge flood. And before the flood, then um, God had delivered all his messages to people via these fish, these weird fish creatures. <laughs> so they were right near the Persian Gulf. And the idea was these huge fish creatures used to come out of the Persian, Persian Gulf in the day and they'd go and they'd tell the Assyrians what to do. They'd be like, don't drink that, uh, be nice to your mum, etc. And then this huge flood came and it basically poisoned the fish creatures so they never came back. And after the flood, there was lots of disease because it, um, you know, floods will cause disease. Mm. And it was thought that was part of the gods' punishment. And from that moment onward, the gods stopped visiting them with these fish creatures. And so, yeah, that was the thing. And that was why you had to have human scholars who were the ones who then received messages from the gods via um, strange and cryptic in the Hebrew- ways. Myth as well, it's the same thing. God provides a rainbow at the end of the to, as a covenant that He will not interfere again. So it, it also ah. marks the the slight withdrawal of God from the people of Israel, the, wow. His chosen people. Okay. In, in, at that moment, he, he's slightly more distant, apart it's, from a few prophets. It's like a show creator handing over, yeah. Yeah. you know, yeah. Russell like, T. Davis to Stephen Moffat <laughs> in uh, <laughs> Doctor Who series. So um, is the vibe not? All oh, right, fine. If that's how you want to do it, I'll leave you to it. Is it a bitter kind of God saying, "Fine, oh, whatever, yes. get on with it"? Then there's still or some things it? that are punished, and in the same way that the uh, the, the real punishment uh, is is a transgression of zen. In, in Greek mythology, which is the guest friendship and the honour you do as a host to a stranger who comes to your door. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the, the, that's really what the story of, of uh, Philemon and Baucis is about. And that's why they're visited with a flood, because everyone in the village turns away Zeus and Hermes, who appear as travellers, except this old couple who welcome them. And that actually is closer to the story of Lot and his mm-hmm. wife in the sins, uh, you know, the city of the plain, uh, uh, Sodom and Gomorrah. Mm-hmm. If you remember, an angel, angels come, you're looking puzzled as if you haven't read the Bible. Yeah. Um, front but, to back, many times. That front to back is the way to do it, isn't it? <laughs> you certainly have heard of Sodom and Gomorrah. And if you remember, what happens is angels come, go to they hear about what wicked city the, the cities of the plain are. They're at the bottom of the uh, Dead Sea. Um, there's still sea signs when you travel down the road there to Jordan saying Sodom that way. <laughs> Very pleasing. But um, anyway, yeah, the, the angels arrived uh, uh and were th- uh, treated very, very rudely, and even more rudely by one particular citizen of Sodom who wanted to know the angel. And that is where the phrase to know them in the biblical sense comes from. In other words, he tried to seduce this angel. Hence, sodomy, sodomite, and the whole idea that Sodom was this place, because that one reference in the Bible of someone who wanted to know the angel. And they punished the, the city with fire. And, they, the, um, and except for the holy couple, just like Duquesne and Bacchus, who were, I mean, um, uh, uh, Philemon and Bacchus, uh, who were Lot and his wife. Mm-hmm. And, and they were allowed to, uh, but they mustn't look back. And it was exactly the same in the Greek myth. But there's no new stories. They're, they're all boys. <laughs> Yeah. Each other. <laughs> well, uh, Stephen, you said that they have the um, the rainbow at the end of Noah's. Um, yes, he sends um, that as a covenant, doesn't he? Yeah, he then, according to Genesis, uh, he began to be a husbandman and planted a vineyard. Noah's vineyard, yes, yep. famously he then the first drank wine. The wine yep. and was drunken, and he was uncovered within his tent. So he basically, once he finished, he got drunk and got naked. 
That's, mm. that's what you do. Well, we see finally a story in the Bible to which everyone can <laughs> 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 done a Noah. <laughs> you know the fish creature that you're mm. talking about? So I'm going off memory here, but depictions I've seen of it is it's a sort of reverse mermaid. It's a fish head oh, with legs. Oh, so yes. it, was a, yes. it was a partial human-based thing, and it's used as those ancient alien kind of things, that mm. that was a higher knowledge that was coming to educate and create these amazing... Um, right. Civilizations at the time, yeah. No one keen on that line no. of chat. Great. All right. Let's. There uh... is no such thing as a fishman. <laughs> it's interesting though, because of course all the evangelists who uh, who became part of the temperance movement at the end of the nineteenth century uh, believed everything in the Bible, but they had to they had to rule out wine, and wine is unquestionably approved of throughout mm, the Bible. Yeah. Not only is Noah the first example of it, but uh, Christ's first miracle is turning water into wine at the wedding in Canaan. So it is clear, and indeed, obviously, the Last Supper and, and everything that becomes so. It's quite difficult to, to if you to believe in all the Bible, but mm -hmm. decide that alcohol is terrible mm -hmm. because yeah. it clearly uh, vindicates Well, there's some translations where they changed it to grape juice and, uh, and things like that. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, so, really? Imagine what kind of bore you'd have to be to make the Bible less sexy. <laughs> <laughs> Very well. <laughs> having to talk to these people. Um, this guy, George Smith, who mm -hmm. deciphered the cuneiform, so he's an amazing guy because he left education at the age of 14. Uh, he became an engraver uh, of banknotes at the Bank of England. So as a result, he had an incredible eye. He could wow. detect incredible details in banknotes that he was engraving mm -hmm. that other people couldn't spot. So, And also, he was obsessed with these cuneiform tablets. So he... He firstly, you know, he delivered this lecture saying the Noah's Ark story is a Hebrew adaptation of a much older story, which created huge controversy mm. because it was quite soon after on the origin of species. It was right. another way of, you know, it was and another. Geology was also doing its damnedest to undermine everything. Yeah. What, uh, yes, uh, was it Ruskin called those damned hammers? Uh, yeah. Mm -hmm. Chipping away at every truth that was understood. So he was kind of a controversial figure. But then the, the, the amazing thing was in this uh, tablet that he had translated, uh, of the Noah's Ark story, there was a section that was missing. There were about 17 lines that were missing from the, the tablet just ended there. Mm -hmm. And the Daily Telegraph offered a thousand guineas to whoever found this missing 11 lines of cuneiform tablet, obviously with him in mind, because he was yeah. the expert, he knew all about it. And he went there, he went to what is now Mosul, which is where the, <gasps> the library... Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and it was where the, the, mod, the library had been, of yeah. uh, King Sennacherib, is that it? Was uh, it, King, no, it was, was it? Ashurbanipal. Sorry, Ashur, where the library of King Ashurbanipal had been. And he got to the site of the library. It was a huge site. It was about three miles across the whole city. Mm. And so it was like looking for a, you know, it really was needle in haystack mm -hmm. stuff. He looked at the, and he went to the pit of the old library. It's the likeliest place he'd find it. And he found that it had been used as a quarry and it was a complete mess of rubble. You know, different, mm. different fragments from all over, oh. all different centuries. But he started looking and the amazing thing was he found it. He found a tiny... He must have... Only he could have found it. Yeah, exactly. He found the 17 lines which completed the Noah's Ark story and he brought it back. Could they wow. see a naked man running back out of the quarry? <laughs> <laughs> wow. How fabulous. Yeah. Imagine that feeling. Wow. Yeah. 
And also, that's kind of a nice mirroring of actually what happened in terms of collecting the information for the library at the time. So in the Assyrian culture. So this is like uh, 3,000 years ago. And Ashurbanipal wanted to collect all human knowledge ever at that point. And he'd collect all these tablets and went and got, got scholars to write them. And if there was something missing, he'd say, oh, there's this story that I've heard about and I don't have it. He'd put a call out to everyone in his kingdom saying, everyone go hunting. <laughs> so all the Assyrians knew what he was looking for and there'd be a reward and they'd just go scouting out and for it. And it's one of the it. biggest kind of kingdoms that had ever existed right it was all of north africa um yeah. all of mesopotamia Middle East, all the way yeah. across mm. yeah it was wow. huge yeah. and sennacherib was after him or before him before was him was his father he I was think. destroyed there's that famous byron poem isn't there the destruction of sennacherib the assyrian oh. came down like a wolf on the fold oh. his cohorts were shining in scarlet and gold oh really yeah, how yeah. was he what well, he was that killed was called the destruction of sennacherib i think I mean, oh really someone listening will know <laughs> <laughs> aren't the assyrians named after noah's grandson isn't Assyria? Oh, grandson. Yeah. Asher. It's actually one of the tribes, isn't it? Yeah, Asher, and um, that's where uh, Assyria, or Assyrian, oh. comes from. So there's well, it's staring Semite us right in the from Shem, of course, Semite. So, um, <laughs> and uh, as in Hamshem, and and yeah. and. and uh, if you're anti-Semitic, technically it means you don't like Arabs as, as much as anything because they are before the split from a between Abraham and Ishmael, mm -hmm. the, who were the t patriarchs of the two different peoples. There was Abraham and Ishmael. Ishmael went out and founded the Arab people, as it were, mm -hmm. and Abraham uh, um, was the patriarch of the Jewish people. Wow. Mm. wow. And, uh, yeah, so you're even more prejudiced than you actually thought. <laughs> yes. Did you say you're anti-Semitic? Yeah. They also had, with the cuneiform tablets, something interesting. They were they were used constantly, so they wouldn't fire them and make them a solid because they wanted to reuse them. So once a tablet had been read, mm, yes. they could remold it and wow. make it better. But what that meant was if they were ever attacked, the Assyrians, and let's say their places were burnt down, by burning down their libraries, they were actually preserving their information because the yeah. clay would be fired oh, up. Baked, mm. yeah. Yeah, so they would course. bake the information Fired into... into That's the yeah. whole reason. The whole library at Nineveh, the reason it survives, is because of that. It's such mm. a funny irony. And it's such a good thing because the Assyrians wow. were eventually taken down by the, the Babylonians. And the uh, I think it's uh, they're like from the Iranian area, currently Iranian, the Needs. And the Babylonians... The Medes. Yes. Medes, yeah. Medes. Medes. Medes and Persians were the two groups that made up was the modern Medes. Iran. As in Dorothy Parker's famous remark. One man's mead is another man's Persian. Uh. Oh, well, maybe she'd argue with, um, I think, it, I can't remember who was saying this, but the meads weren't particularly cultured. Uh, so the Babylonians no. would have taken these tablets and preserved them and gone, oh, right. my God, this is learning. But the meads just went, sod it, let's burn the whole thing down. And then, ironically, they managed by doing that to completely preserve them forever. So in your face, meads. very good. <laughs> <laughs> and they're so revealing, aren't they, about what it is to be human? Because like almost all ancient forms of writing, 95% of it is taxation. Mm. and accounting <laughs> um, and storage of grain yeah. but then you get this fabulous bit the bit that Irving Finkel is so excited by that the children's mm. uh, the equivalent of the exercise book where you mm. have the little clay tablets that he has in the British Museum which you can go and see which are children uh, writing insults about their teachers oh, and things so like that right. as they're practicing. I mean, it's just delicious. <laughs> yeah. so real insight. It's just fabulous. Yeah. There is one story which I haven't found any... I've found it in one source only, and it's so I think it's not true, but it's of a, a clay bottle, and there was an apprentice at the British Museum who would not rest until he had deciphered this inscription on the bottle, and it turned out to read, please replace stopper in bottle. 90% <laughs> <laughs> sure it's a joke. That, that's like that wooden 
Evening Post that had Toti Emil Esto written on it. Four le- two, three f- uh, four-letter words. Toti Emul, E-M-U-L, okay. Esto. And both look at that. It sort of looks Latin. No, Simul, yeah. so why Emul? But Esto is not quite right. Late Latin, maybe Pig Latin might have Esto. Toti, all something. And <laughs> someone pointed out and said, no, that's to tie mules to. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, it is time for our final fact of the show, and that is James. Okay, my fact this week is that the rarest frog in England has a distinctive Norfolk accent. (laughs) Very pleasant to know. (laughs) I've heard of birds having local accents, but frog. Well, actually, there's. I'm sure you can tell us about the Californian Western literal frog. Oh, the one which you hear in Hollywood. Yeah, the, one, the yeah. only frog that the actually frog. goes ribbit. ribbit. Yes, yeah, yeah. Yeah. But so because you're... it was used by sound recordists to do backgrounds for the jungle and everything, wasn't it? Yeah. Is that right? Uh, that, I, believe yeah, that. I think I saw uh, that on QI. I think it was on QI. <laughs> that's my memory. <laughs> uh, so this is the northern pool frog. Uh, it was extinct in, um, in England, in Norfolk, and they found out doing 10 years of research that they had this distinctive call, um, which is common to the Norfolk area. Uh, it's a unique accent and that and some genetics made them realise that it was endemic to Norfolk which meant that they could bring it back and they've just recently put it back into some pools in Norfolk. Wonderful in the broads or the fens in presumably. The, yeah, in the broads, oh, yeah. Very satisfying. And does it does it bear any resemblance to the Huban Norfolk accent? Uh, it's just a <laughs> slightly deeper rivet. I think. <laughs> one single comment about it being fonder of its sister than most frogs are, and I will be very cross indeed. Um, so humans can tell if frogs are excited or not. <laughs> this is a really interesting thing. So it, humans can tell basically if almost all vertebrates really are excited or not. So this was an experiment done by scientists. They played recordings of aroused and non-aroused frogs, and aroused just means... Not stimulated in some way, angry, nervous, something. Exactly, yeah. And this was people who spoke different languages as well. So it was, I think, some English and some Mandarin and some of a third language. And 90% of them could tell which the aroused ones were. And the reason that we think this is, is because we think there are universal vocal elements. So when we're excited or as it's, we speak higher and faster. Mm. And frogs do the same thing. So we think there are vocal signals that are the same even in different taxa which is is really interesting Mm. yeah but frogs are a sort of index species for all kinds of the health of uh, wetlands and everything yeah Mm. tens of thousands of and there's a there's a runny um um, whatever it is a runiform virus at the moment that's threatening frogs Mm. everywhere yeah really terribly sad yeah yeah they're they're all like everything is and also we're running out of ponds Yes, yeah. in the UK. There Let are, alone, yes, natural wetlands, the, yeah. the good old suburban ones, you mean? Yeah, there are half as many ponds in the UK than there were 50 years ago. <gasps> really? Norfolk has lost 8,000 ponds since the 1950s. Oh, have you know my parents have a pond in Norfolk? Yeah. <laughs> does it have do. frogs? <laughs> it does have frogs, good. and they frog spawn, and it's always rather amazing, and they try and protect the frog spawn from the various predators that like <laughs> to eat it. <laughs> <laughs> but if you yeah. combine two ponds into one larger pond, you have technically destroyed a pond. 
So, <laughs> is, it, is it possible there are made a lake. just one massive <laughs> <Yeah>. lake? <laughs> I know it seems unlikely. Yeah. yeah, I don't think that's what's happened. I don't think Norfolk <laughs> is now one huge lake <laughs> and no other ponds. Well, certainly when I was a boy, definitely. I mean, it sort of virtually every day, my brother and I we had nothing better to do. We'd go and hunt for sticklebacks and newts yeah. and all those sort of creatures. Well, every village would have a pond, and most farms would have yes. a pond because it's where you would get your water from. And, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Um, but they don't really yeah, like a chitty chitty bang bang one, you know, the one mm. that um, truly scrumptious gets stuck in in her car. <laughs> That yes. sort of one, you know, yeah. the ducks and... Was it in Norfolk where there's that myth about a lake where the reflection of the moon is in it and the myth was that they used to tell uh, visitors to the area that they'd been trying to catch that big white thing in the middle of the lake for years and they should have a go because they just couldn't get it and it was their trick they played. Was that in, in Wiltshire. In Wiltshire. Yeah. Well, I thought yeah. it was in, potato I thought potato. It was in Somerset. One of those ones that's in whichever county you happen to be talking yeah. about. Yes. <laughs> um, don't confuse Norfolk with uh, the language with Norfolk which is N-O-R-F-U-K, which is a language spoken on Norfolk Island. Oh, oh. oh just off Australia. Uh, in the Pacific, yeah. yeah. Uh, and it's a blend of 18th century English and Tahitian. Is it? Right. Oh. Good, it? Yeah. Well, you know, don't confuse it. Do you think people are showing up? <laughs> going, hey, got a light bulb? <laughs> That's the wrong accent for it. On the bold city. Do you know where you can find a Norfolk accent? Not in Norfolk, is in parts of New England. Um, because so when the Pilgrim Fathers went over and say that a lot of them are from East Anglia, mm. a lot from Norfolk, and there are certain um, quirks of mm. the accent, New England accent, that are only seen in Norfolk. So I think, and a few phrases. One of them was "Good on you," apparently. Good on you. Yeah. Um, yeah. Good on you. Another oh, one cool. uh, was "How much did you give for it?" As opposed to how much did you pay for it, which apparently okay. is a quintessentially Norfolk thing. <laughs> and the do you, the I don't know what that sort of progressive present is really peculiar. When the do you not not as a question but as a as an invitation or even a command. Do you sit down, meaning sit down. Yeah, that's oh. weird. Do you come in? Do you come in? Oh, you must be cold. Do you come in? <laughs> that just means come in. Yeah. Uh, all this do meaning if, which is a, a very strange Norfolk thing. Say so you want to come in? Do you'll get cold? Really? So the do means if you don't. Oh, my goodness. Oh, so wow. Really Lest. Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah, and, um, yeah. My sister's nanny was from, was from Norfolk, and she I used to enrage her. Or, <laughs> no, not really. She was a... Uh, but, you know, sort of tease her and things like that. And uh, she said, you stop behaving, do I'll tell your father. Do I'll tell your oh, father. Oh, really? Said, yeah, it's very, very oh, extraordinary. I read a really funny um, blog on the British Library website. So the British Library have done this amazing thing, which is they want to preserve dialects before they all disappear. So they've got loads of volunteers over the last few years to go and record things that they say in their own local dialect. And they've kept these recordings. So you can go online. It's brilliant. Um, go to it. It's called the Evolving English Word Bank. Oh, but it's really great. The only problem with it is the kind of people who are going around the British Library and volunteering stuff are, you can tell when you listen to the recordings, they're not the kind of people who are using the street slang of the modern day. <laughs> so you have, like, I listened to one. It's so good. It's this obviously really sort of learned, uh, nervous-sounding, nerdy old man. It says, um, uh, I've got two examples of words I'd like preserved uh, that are used by pupils at a school in Oxford where I'm from um, the first word is bear spelled B-A-R-E which now means a lot uh, and the the second word is jokes that is jokes which is now used as a word meaning fun um, what? and then he gave an example he said so a pupil in school recently wrote I am a seed uh, he was learning about germination I am a seed and when it's winter I don't sprout because there's 
bare snow on the ground, but if I wait until it's warm, everything will be jokes. And <laughs> oh, it's just if that's wow. what's preserved as to how people are using bare <laughs> and jokes in the future. That's strange. There is an amazing book, uh, which this is more just for people listening right now, um, Susie Dent. Um, oh, oh, wonderful yeah. Susie yeah, Dent. She wrote this done yeah. yeah, she wrote a fantastic book recently, which was she went to every sort of, uh, she went to hang out with builders and, and mm. uh, people who work in uh, transport and the current slang being used by all of them she documented down in this book so it's sort of fresh slang wow. preserving a time it's That's really cool. beautiful oh, book good for her yeah. very important that because I love books on uh, thieves cant and mm. uh, and those sort of uh, slangs of the yeah. 17th uh, century and, and onwards and um, I, I want to just memorialise the great Dennis Norden because you reminded me of a story he told you, you remember the great comic writer and who died in his late 90s just recently he told me this fabulous story when he was uh, at school he had a very good English teacher very advanced for his day I mean this is way back in the 20s and 30s I mean, 20s I guess um, and uh, he was he said right we're going to do rein- words that reinforce meaning uh, class and they were going reinforce what's that <laughs> you know London uh, uh, it's mm-hmm. a pretty poor ordinary school in the East End where, where, where Dennis grew up and he said uh, I'll, I'll illustrate this by telling the story of these two road builders, navvies, you know, uh, and one of them sees a, a poster on the wall and it says, one man, one vote. He goes, what's that about? And his mate says, well, I mean, it means one man, one vote, doesn't it? He said, well, I don't get it. One man, one vote. How does that? I don't think it means you've got one man, you've got one vote. <laughs> no, I... No, I still don't get it. One fucking man, one fucking vote. Oh! That's fantastic. Um, good way to seem cool in front of your pupils telling that story. Yeah, as soon as you drop exactly. a swear word as a teacher, Especially you've got their respects. Mm, yeah, yeah. No well done. Because every generation thinks they've invented it. Yes. Yeah. Uh, that's the extraordinary thing. I mean, you know, the idea that one's grandfather was saying uh, the F word all the time in the trenches. Yeah. Which I remember being so shocked by when I read all Goodbye to All That, you know, the Robert Graves. Uh, mm. And he, he thought he'd heard all the swearing he could ever hear at school, you know, in the showers, as it were, after the rugby game. And he said the first moment he, he, he was, you know, training with, with other uh, cadets and was listening to NCOs and sergeants, he just never imagined people would swear that. Mm-hmm. And uh, and of course that's you don't see that. We yeah. see a sanitized version, just as you don't see them wiping their bottoms away, should you? <laughs> <laughs> We've got better things to do, obviously. But it is important to remember because certainly someone of my generation thinks of the First World War as one's grandfather's generation. Obviously, most people listening are far too young to, to that. They'd be your great grandfathers and possibly even great great grandfathers. But uh, I knew people. I at my school there were there were people who fought in the First World War, and to my eternal shame, I remember this man, Mr. Sorden, who who shook his hands all the time and slightly gaped with his mouth, and he was the brother of the uh, headmaster's uh, wife and uh, um, he was we teased him mercilessly and then one day one of the masters said you do know he won a military cross in the first world war he was one of the bravest men you'll ever meet he was destroyed by watching a whole trench of his friends blown up in front of his eyes and I just remember they were always mocking him and doing his really imitating yeah. his yeah. trembling hands and, and so obviously you think of them as a very extraordinary generation but you don't think of them as just like us mm. it's so mm. important we do think that they did swear they did live colourful lives as Peter Jackson shows literally colourful in yeah. every sense it's, yeah um, that was brilliant wasn't it yeah. the Peter Jackson thing if anyone didn't see it uh, it's amazing when you see um, war suddenly with a blue sky yes yes, yes. yes. so 
counterintuitive. You just thought it's going to be mucky and, and dark, yeah. but yeah, they they fought on sunny days. Yeah. Um, we should wrap up shortly. We can. We yeah. can do one last thing. Go on, Andy. Yeah, I've got a frog. It's a cool frog, and I didn't want to Give us mention a frog. the frog. Have you heard of the Northern Spring Peeper? Nope. No. Okay, so um, it's very cool. It's it, it's um, it lives in ponds, and the temperature frequently drops below freezing. Problem. But the frog hibernates, and it has a, it has evolved a way to stay alive while it has frozen. Um, the temperature inside it, if it gets to minus two or three Celsius, the frog can survive because the water inside it is super cooled. So it's still liquid. If it gets any colder than that, it's still not a problem. The water under the frog skin freezes, and its stomach becomes a solid ball of ice. Very so cool. about half the water inside the frog freezes. It can survive for a week like this. And it's because, so normally the problem is you get ice crystals inside your cells and the mm. cells rupture and yep. you die. That's, you know, what happens. Yes, yes. As soon as the ice crystals start to form inside the frog, the frog's liver goes into an emergency rapid response action. It produces a load of glucose. Glu- and it I was spreads glycerin, it. yeah. yeah. Mm. It spreads yeah. it throughout the body and it prevents the crystals forming in the cells. But the glucose levels in its core organs shoot up 50 times as much. Wow. As soon as the first ice crystal forms, the frog's liver goes, ah, we're freezing. Wow. React. Wonder if you get an alcoholic frog who's got liver damage, whether it's less and good. Ins- incipient that. diabetes as well. <laughs> 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 wow. Well, I'll, I'll. I mean, I've got a story to tell about a frog, and if you're this because it's really not very sound. Um, but uh, it's uh, 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 there's a librarian who's uh, busy, and she uh, a hen comes in into the library um, and goes. Bop. <laughs> and uh, librarian thinks, oh, okay, and grabs a book and gives it to her, <laughs> and and the hen goes off, and and then the hen comes back, really quite, you know, a few hours later, and goes, bok, bok, bok. <laughs> and gives her three books, and two under one wing, and one under the other, and off goes the hen, and then the hen comes back and goes, bok, 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 bok. Uh, and it dumps the three books that had been given, and so she gives another six books, <laughs> and it's lunchtime, and the librarian thinks, I've got to see this extraordinary literary hen, um, and uh, follows it down the street, down little alleyways, and then. Um, up, up uh, in, into a door and the door's left open and so the <laughs> librarian watches the hen with these books tucked under its wing going all the way up to the top of the stairs and into a room the door's closed but the librarian kneels down and looks through the keyhole and there on the bed is a frog with a little spotty bandage around its forehead and a, and a thermometer in its mouth and the hen takes the thermometer out and reads it and then hands a book to the frog and the frog says read it read it <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's a fantastic fact to end on. Uh... <laughs> <New> story. <laughs> okay, that's it. That is all of our facts. Thank you so much for listening. If you'd like to get in contact with any of us about the things that we've said over the course of this podcast, we can be found on our Twitter accounts. I'm on at Schreiberland, Andy at Andrew Hunter M, James at James Harkin, Stephen at Stephen Fry. Might get some followers off this soon. <laughs> I'm hoping. <laughs> and uh, Chesinski. You can email podcast at qi.com. Yep, or you can go to our group account at no such thing or go to our website, no such thing as a fish.com, where we have all of our previous episodes. You should also go to bookshops and to Amazon and wherever you can get books to get Stephen's new book, which is Heroes. Uh, it's the story of the Greek myths. Uh, it's an amazing book. And uh, yeah, definitely get it for everyone for this Christmas. Uh, you, oh, that's all right. Okay, that's it. We'll be back again next week. We'll see you then. Goodbye. Bye.